little girl let me walk you home You shouldn't be out walking all alone This is podcast 158, entitled Changing Social Conditions in Indianapolis. A review that concerned the DVD release of Orson Welles' famous movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, was attempting to simply inform the reader that the very fine film was based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1918 novel by Booth Tarkington entitled The Magnificent Ambersons. And the reviewer was saying that the novel, now forgotten, and this is a direct quote, concerns changing social conditions in Indianapolis. And I thought to myself, well, Golly, isn't that extraordinary how the critical um, voice or a persona that can seize hold of a, of a person has such a uh, massive inclination to categorize something. So we read that Booth Tarkington's once famous, now apparently forgotten novel entitled The Magnificent Ambersons is a study in the changing social conditions in Indianapolis. Well, that is striking because 
if you've read the novel, and it's very easily available, and was once a very um, well-read uh, novel by the American novelist with the uh, awe-inspiring name, it's actually about, in the context of a declining family's fortunes in every sense of that word, and in the context of the great change that does in fact take place externally as well as internally in this very Oedipal family dynamic, the Ambersons, the book is actually turning on something quite different and very interesting and very relevant that bespeaks hope at the very deepest level. And I always read these books, just as you do, as someone who is looking for something. I'm like the characters in the Drew Friedman cartoon or drawing that I've talked about in the past entitled Sitcom Characters in Search of Enlightenment, in which in a library, I love Lucy and I, from I Love Lucy and Maynard G. Krebs from Dobie Gillis and uh, uh, Barney Fife uh, from The Andy Griffith Show and a host of other familiar, you know, um, The Life of Riley, William Bendix, all these people in traditional sitcoms from television are sitting in a library reading Dostoevsky and uh, reading the Bhagavad Gita, and you name it, Thoreau. They're all TV sitcom characters in search of enlightenment. Well, you and I are TV sitcom characters because our lives are highly unreal, in my opinion, and involve a very, very rapidly fallible and passing kind of um, skein of of ups and downs and uh, finally death uh, and uh, all the wave-like currents of ever-changing moods, to quote the Style Council. We're all searching for enlightenment, so I read these books, just as you do, because I want a little bit of help. I want some aid. And so when you actually read the um, novel entitled The Magnificent Ambersons, you find something quite, quite different is going on. And in fact, the uh, conclusion, the, the, the turning in the novel, which occurs actually in the 35th chapter of the novel is the only basic theme in the book that is omitted from the movie. I have a feeling that Orson Welles might have shot um, the scene, uh, which I'm going to talk about, because the whole history of that movie is very complex. But um, it's not in the version that he approved, at least, and I don't know if it was shot. But the key moment in the entire drama, which is um, very, very faithful to the book, Despite what people think, the ending of the movie and the ending of the book are exactly the same. But the turning point is not in the movie because it involves um, a notion or an experience which the world doesn't want to hear at the highest level. So even a great artist like Orson Welles uh, is a little leery, apparently, in the scriptwriter of putting that which is truly awesome that occurs in the book. And I want to talk about it briefly, and then I want to talk about a similar event in Galsworthy, and then I want to talk about... um, a song by the Buckinghams. Now, the um, turning point of this remarkable story is of a man who is irreconcilably opposed to and alienated from the son, the grown son of the woman, woman he has loved, and he's irreconcilably opposed to the grown son now of the woman he has loved, and through whom, the grown son that is, he lost the woman that he loved who's now dead. And so he uh, is, uh, he hates with very good reason this young man. And um, 
as you remember from the movie, there's a reconciliation. But what causes the reconciliation? The reconciliation in the book is caused by a dramatic intervention on the part of the supernatural. Because uh, Eugene Morgan, the character who in the movie is played by uh, Joseph Cotton, um, receives word that the young man has been injured in an accident. Uh, and he uh, is rather pleased about it in a way, as if to say the man got his comeuppance, which is right in a very real sort of Kramer sense. And However, something occurs as he's in New York City that causes a little light to go on inside him, and he does a completely uncharacteristic thing. This very rather hard-boiled sort of engineer, but very, very, very successful engineer, he goes to consult a trance medium. That's the word that Tarkington uses. In other words, he goes to, to, to consult a medium whom he has in fact consulted before, this remarkably successful, got his head on his shoulders, sober sides person, but with a great love at the root of his loss. And he goes to consult a medium, and the medium is named Lopa. Her actual name is Mrs. Horner, but she becomes, a la The Family Plot, remember The Family Plot by Hitchcock? She becomes uh, another person in the course of the conversation for which he is paying. And she's not a fake. She's actually very sincere, although dowdy and uh, sort of, he can't believe that he's actually doing this. He's actually at his age of 55 or 65, even 60, consulting a medium. And he, uh, he receives from the medium, Mrs. Horner, who becomes Lopa, a spirit guide to Eugene Morgan. He receives a message from beyond the grave he receives a message from his true deceased love, lost love, Isabel Amberson. And that message that he completely believes and the author means you to believe, and it's done in such a way that it can be construed in a number of ways. It's done in a real way, a credible way. But when you read it, you are meant to see that somehow he has been made contact with by the spirit of his dead, lost love through the um, gift of a medium whose spirit guide name is Lopa. And on the basis of this remarkable intervention, which he has sought, but he had no idea it would be so profound, it's absolutely the turning point of the entire novel. He resolves to do something, which then the movie picks up and takes uh, very, very brilliantly. You'll remember the scene in which both the daughter, the grown daughter, moves from left to right in the frame, but not towards the camera, and then followed by the father, Joseph Cotton, Eugene Morgan, who follows in his daughter's path, who leads the way towards the very remarkable and reconciling conclusion of that book and movie. Now, what that says, not only is that um, this is not about changing social conditions in, uh, in uh, Indianapolis, but your life is not your life is not changing about changing social conditions in wherever you live in this country in the year 2013 and soon to be 2014. Uh, it has absolutely, uh, well, yes, a little bit to do with change social conditions. And the fact, let's emphasize the word change because change is endemic to the world. Radical change, radical change. But um, the external conditions of your life are not in fact what has grabbed you by the proverbials. You are, by that I mean to say, has really um, engrossed your f fundamental core attention. 
that is much more likely to be something like a lost love or um, a current love or a child or a terribly troubled and um, murky and unreconciled relationship. So you need a LOPA, Mrs. Horner. Please report to the information desk for an important message from me. I need you, Lopa. Well, the um, inspired view of the world uh, finds this to be true, and um, the world omits it, but it's there in the book. Let me give you another example. In the uh, remarkable um, third trilogy of novels by John Galsworthy, entitled The End of the Chapter. And these are all easily available for you to find. Uh, Galsworthy, you have to buy. uh, Tarkington, you can look up on the Internet Project Gutenberg. But the last trilogy of the novels is about a sort of life of the party, but actually the life, the deepest possible life of the party. A woman, I've talked about her before, named Dinny Cheryl, about 26 years old, young English unmarried woman who is of extraordinary maturity, depth, insight, and also feeling and integration. She is the ultimate woman. She is rational. She is intellectual. She is authoritative. She's got her feet on the ground. She is totally a woman. She is deeply feeling. She is utterly giving. She's completely in touch with with all that which makes a man ultimately deeply content and at the same time makes herself deeply content, and she is the absolute embodied reality of that which is, uh, um, which everybody wants to be and wants to have with them. And Denny Cheryl comes into a situation of a lost and totally lost love towards the conclusion, at the conclusion of the second of the concluding trilogy, this novel entitled Flower and Wilderness, in such a way that she is completely and totally bereft like you and me, could be, can be, have been, will be. And she um, receives in the concluding novel entitled the, um, it's called Over the River in its English edition, but the American edition is entitled One More River, made into a movie, as I've said before, and by James Whale. But it's a truly great, or shall I say, a truly inspired novel in which I believe God spoke through the inspired writer's hands uh, of John Galsworthy. And on the Monday after New Year's Day, 1932, she has a visionary dream. And uh, her sober sides, uh, but also deeply affecting and feeling persona, having come up against the brick wall of her entire life, is met by a supernatural vision. It takes place, as I said, on the Monday after New Year's Day, 1932. And when you read the book, uh, it's not entirely um, – only later. It's like that um, short story by uh, – oh, what was her name? The great uh, Edith Wharton called Afterward. Only afterward, after the vision, quite long after the vision in the course of the book, do you realize what's happened? But um, Galsworthy has received the message that uh, this uh, complete impasse, which she, like the character Eugene Morgan in the Magnificent Ambersons novel, this point of absolutely and totally being knocked off her horse by life, there's only one possible answer, and it has to come in some form of a, of a, of a givenness from outside herself, from God. In the one case, it's through a trance medium who actually is in touch with the ultimate reality of the cosmos in a little rooming house or a little stuffy apartment in um, 
New York City in 1918. And uh, later, in a dream that this young English woman of age 26 happens to have um, at the home of her parents outside of Oxford. And um, what this is, is that um, we need a word from God. And that the uh, greatest message of all is not simply that we live lives that are characterized by um, constant mutability and change, profound unsatisfactoriness, or as the old translations used to say, of the three characteristics, suffering, and the third characteristic being unreality. Because, by the way, in um, Tarkington's book, listen to the word about reality that... um, Eugene Morgan comes to find out. It says after he has this uh, vision, uh, this remarkable supernatural meeting with his lost love, Isabel Amberson, by means of the medium Lopa, it says, he paid her, went to his hotel, and thence to his train for home. Never did he seem so to move through a world of dreams. Never did he so seem to move through a world of dream stuff for he knew that he was not more credulous than other men. And if he could believe what he had believed, though he had believed it for no longer than a moment or two, what hold had he or any other human being on reality? Well, that's Booth Tarkington, who grew up in Indianapolis, speaking of the third characteristic of being. That is to say that it makes us question the reality of anything and everything that we have ever been a part of. So the um, power of these muses, Galsworthy and Tarkington, and there are many other examples, and not enough of them really, is that reality is not enough to express reality. And finally, there has to be the intervention of something that is also ultimately completely true. The supernatural vision of the trance medium in The Magnificent Ambersons and the remarkable astral dream that Dinny Cheryl has at Condiford Grange, her parents' home, the Monday after New Year's Day 1932. Well, let me say one other thing about that, because um, notice that in both of these visions, it, it, it always has to do with, um, with, uh, with a person. Eugene Morgan is rightfully obsessed by the loss of a woman whom he has loved with all his heart, his true love, and for his life to have any kind of establishment reorganization and power and renewal, he has to deal with this woman who has died, whom he has loved, and whom he has lost, named Isabel. He must deal with that. Whatever comes from God has to be linked completely with the, in this case, the male-female question, the great question of human existence. Whom am I going to love and who is going to love me? And similarly, Dinny is dealing with this not in a vacuum or as some kind of um, compartment that we might call religion, but rather she is dealing religiously with the one thing that matters, which is her lost love. In this case, a highborn but very troubled young man whom she has truly and forever loved, named Wilfred 
Desert, so brilliantly named. And the connection between the two is palpable. Now, um, uh, oh golly, uh, what well, must have been three or four years ago when um, a friend of mine, someone in a parish, no, it wasn't three or four years ago, golly, it was in, uh, it was in a parish. I think it was in my last parish, but it might have been two parishes back. They begin to run together, but I remember this particularly well. He um, came to me and he said, you know, I understand that the great question of theology is how does what Christ did back then relate to me now? He said, because he was very well read, he said, I probably could almost, um, you know, give you a speech about how, um, theologically speaking, something that happened very long ago can apply theoretically and possibly even sort of putatively and conceptually in such a way that it could even be a remembered fact that would speak to my particular problems that I have in my life as of now in 1996 or whenever it was, or 2004, something like that. And um, he said, but it's still not, I don't quite get it. I don't quite, I can't quite capture for me that is a satisfactorily engaging, meaningful, hits me where I live, the connection between then and now, between God's love as I understand it then, and my enormous um, desire for love and completeness and fulfillment today. And the thought immediately came, but I didn't have the guts to say it. Now, this man was married happily to a woman named Susan, as I recall. And um, the thought immediately came when he said, how can I have some kind of hold on that which is ancient, which I actually think I believe in my current tremendous um, uh, need for fulfillment and expression and contentment in love, in life, I think is what he actually said. And my immediate gut feeling was that the answer is one word, Susan. In other words, if you want to know what it is that, uh, where you're going to find out that connection that you so long to experience, the answer is her. The answer is Susan. Well, you know, I mean, I had all these thoughts came through my mind when I wanted to say that. I specifically remember thinking of Shelley, <laughs> Percy B. Shelley, because, you know, people always used to sort of accuse Shelley of where does, um, where, do, where, where does his love life end and God begin? Or where does God end and his love life begin? Because in so many poems of Shelley's, where he talks about his beloved Harriet or his beloved Mary, and I think there's, a, there's another famous one, Claire, maybe, I forget, Clara, I forget who the other one is, I don't, but I know Harriet was one and Mary. He constantly talks about these people, uh, these women whom he loves so, and he idolizes them, and they become symbols for him of all that is good and right and possible and even transcendent. And so you you have to really uh, discriminate as you read his rather mystical poems, especially of his, what we might call today, his maturity, but he died very, very young. Let's simply say his later poems. He um, Is he talking about Harriet or is he talking about God? Or is he talking about God as if God is Harriet? Or is he talking about Harriet as if Harriet were God? And actually, the fact is, it's all a little bit muddled together, or shall I say, it's all one. 
For him, the oneness that he receives through this overwhelming and passionate attachment to Harriet, or whoever it is, is exactly, um, or, or Mary for that, Mary Godwin was her name, wasn't it? She wrote Frankenstein. Um, is, is, Harriet, is Mary God, or is God Mary? It's not entirely possible to distinguish. And you know, the funny thing is, it doesn't have to be. Because we learn from Lopa in Booth Tarkington that God speaks from the cosmic, the cosmos and the reality, the cosmic man, that wonderful movie with John Carradine about polio and interventions and eggs, big egg spacecraft or balloons in Bronson Canyon, L.A. He, um, is, is it God or is it a woman or is it a woman or is it a God? And, and Lope, for Lope, uh, Lopa has to instruct, God through Lopa has to instruct Eugene Morgan that um, th- he's got to deal with Isabel in order to be anything like a real uh, contented, happy and good man now. And similarly, Dinny has to receive a vision of Wilfred. Uh, in order for her to have any kind of hope in anything like a future. The two are massively intertwined, and this is what I'm trying to say. Don't worry about the fact that the woman or the man, the woman or the man, are intertwined with the presence of God. Don't worry about that. That's characteristically how they are mediated. At the end of Flowering Wilderness... After Dini, this is the penultimate novel in the third, um, the uh, third uh, novel uh, of, of the last uh, trilogy. Flower Wilderness is the second in the third trilogy. Drinny has lost everything, and she goes out into the dark night, uh, and uh, we read uh, outside her parents' house, which is in a beautiful country estate, but it's sort of falling down. The last dregs of the long daylight had drained down beyond the rim, but warmth abided, for no air stirred and no dew fell, a still dry dark night with swarming stars. Night was a friend, no eye to see, no ear to listen, nature pitiless and indifferent, even to the only creatures who crowned and petted her with pretty words. Threads broke and hearts broke, or whatever really happened to the silly things. Nature heaved no sigh. One twitch of nature's lip would have been more to her than all human sympathy. If for one minute in this darkness she could feel at one with the starshine, the smell of earth, the twitter of that bat, the touch of a moth's wing on her nose. I will not think of him, she thought. I will not think of him. As a child that refuses to remember what has hurt it, so would she be. And instantly his face formed in the darkness, his eyes and lips She turned around to the tree trunk and leaned her forehead on its roughness, but his face came between. Recoiling, she walked away, over the grass, swiftly and without noise, invisible as a spirit. Well, she thought, I have had my hour. It can't be helped. I must go in. She stood for a moment, looking up at the stars, so far, so many, bright and cold. And with a faint smile, she thought, I wonder which is my lucky star. Thus ends, my friends, (laughs) listener, 
Flower and Wilderness by John Galsworthy. And what she has discovered is that um, it's all tied up with Wilfred. She has to get, she has to deal with Wilfred. She has to deal with the loss of Wilfred. She, Wilfred is right there in front of her. Just as um, my friend who longed for an answer to the connection between that which is ancient and that which is present, the answer was Susan. The answer is Wilfred, which is not to say we leave there, but we have to work through that. We have to start there for any kind of religious answer. And as we've uh, seen in Lopez's words, which redeem so powerfully the concluding uh, pages of uh, the Magnificent Ambersons, both in book and movie, and we see in Diddy the beginnings, the first tiny beginnings when she comes to realize that it's really all about Wilfred. It's not really about nature, which is an abstraction, even in the middle of it but it's about Wilfred. She says, I wonder which is my lucky star, which is, a point of in, which is a point of impenetrable hope. And as you'll find when you read the third and concluding novel, which is entitled um, Over the River or One More River, um, that note of hope is answered by a tremendously powerful expression of the provision of God for this tr- very, very lonely um, and uh, sad uh, character named Denny Cheryl. And so it is uh, with all of us. This is what I often try to say. I'm trying to uh, communicate in these casts something that um, is hopeful and yet real. I continue to meet people who have no hope, and I see it all over the place, especially in older men. Those are the ones who talk to me particularly. But I see it in older women. It's just not stated because it's denied. It's absolutely denied. When when all is lost, I find uh, that uh, there's still a tremendous uh, need to not deal. But the way that the men, at least, who talk to me, uh, the older men, is that they really, they might have been religious once, but uh, they've really, they're sitting in a vast, I guess the old-fashioned word is funk, of, um, of agnosticism. A vast, vast... Settled funk of agnosticism. And I really want to talk you out of that. I want to offer you Denny's star, her lucky star. I mean, I forget the word lucky star. I mean, I can't, that sounds so, you know, like a four leaf clover. That's just a way of matter of speaking. There is something that bears hope to me now, is what she's saying. And she sees it and she feels it. And lo and behold, in the next novel. And then, uh, um, the word from Lopa to Eugene Morgan, uh, because he receives a message. He receives a message, and it's a message of extraordinary and dramatic pith. He receives a message, I would call it from God, but in his opinion it's from Isabel, but the two are mixed, and together he finds the strength to do something really magnificent, as in the title, although he himself is not an Amberson. And um, that's what I wanted to give you. And on that note, let's conclude with this word to all who are trying to um, find the answer but may um, um, uh, be in danger of abstracting it. And it is a very um, remarkable song characterized by a highly contrived uh, middle section that I think you'll, you'll just think Beatles, just think, think Sergeant Pepper, and then more importantly, think the touching uh, title and refrain of this great song by the Buckinghams. God bless. Looks like I'm losing, I'm losing my mind. 